0: Hello, everybody. My name is Lon Strohschein, former public company executive turned lifestyle engineer. One year ago, I left my job as a public company executive, and I left without a resume, without another job, without a Rolodex of clients, but I left anyway. I left believing that the best years of my life were in front of me and knowing that they weren't going to be found where I was standing. I left, and my mission has become to inspire the lives of a thousand dudes, to inspire the dude I used to be, to go do the things they want to do my job here is to give you courage to finally act and it's to remind you that dude at this stage in life nobody shows up to do it for you but i'm here and i'll travel that highway with you thanks for being here enjoy this episode we'll see you along the normal 40 highway Hey, everyone, welcome to Normal 40, the podcast. My name is Lon Strohschein, founder of the Normal 40, and serving as your lead pilot on this podcast. And I am super excited you are here. Hey, look, you are not going to believe this. You know who's joining me today? Former General Stanley McChrystal. And if you are like me, you are probably thinking to yourself, how the heck did that happen? Well, look, we're going to talk about that. Here's the deal. General McChrystal is in a book I wrote just weeks ago. I released my book called The Trade. Spoiler alert. We're going to talk a little bit about that. I released my book, The Trade. And look, it's done amazing. It's done as much or more than I ever could have hoped that it would do. Every day I wake up and I've got these notes. I get notes from people, the nicest notes. And they say, I'm only in chapter four and you blew my mind. I got a note this morning from a dude. He's like, the box, it's a chapter in the box. And it talks about what you feel. He said... I had to put it down. I had to go tell my wife what I, was, what I was thinking and feeling. And then I had her read it. So she could. She, she said, you had my words. I just, I, just didn't, I didn't know it. Every day I wake up to the nicest messages. And it is absolutely rewarding. But along the way, look, I, I, uh, my journey has been incredible. It's been absolutely incredible. And so I get asked the question a lot. How did I get to stand? And the question is, how I got to him is going to shock you. Here's how I did it. I knew that he's a guy who gets asked to endorse books every day, every single day. I mean, he works. He now is the founder of the McChrystal Group, which leads and does strategy for a majority, a majority of the Fortune 100 companies. And he's a guy in demand. He's a public speaker. He's on every major podcast you can ever imagine. How am I going to get to this guy? You know how I did it? I wrote him a note. I didn't send him a text. I didn't go to his website and try to figure out how to send him an email. I sat down. And I wrote him a note with a pen and paper. And then I went to his website and got what I thought would be a good address. And it turned out that it was, and I sent it to him. And he got the note on a Thursday and on a Friday, I got an email from him saying, Hey dude, well, he didn't say dude, that was me. Sorry. He said, Lon, thank you for the gracious note. And the email went on to say, I get asked to endorse a lot of books and I never endorse a book I haven't read. So if you send me a copy of your book and I like it, I will endorse it. Well, I sent him a copy of my unedited. It was pre-edited. This was a manuscript at the time. I mean, the book was done. I mean when you if you've ever written a book and you've written the last line, you know when you're done, and I was there. The book was done. Great. And I sent him it had typos, it had errors, but the content of the book was done, and I sent it to him because I just wanted to get it to him. I couldn't believe that I was actually in correspondence with with uh, General McChrystal, who's given me strict instructions to call him Stan, which I'm going to do, so please know that he really. <laughs> He gets kind of upset with me because I kept calling him gentle. Um, So Stan sends me a note and he says, uh, if I like the book, I'll endorse it. I sent him the book on a Saturday. And that next Sunday night, I had a note from him back saying, I love the book. I love your mission. I love what you're doing. And I want to be helpful. Here's my endorsement. And I'd be glad to do a podcast. Okay. What you're going to hear is one part of the podcast. And here's what you're going to hear. Let me just set it up a little bit. I listened to before I recorded Stan, so I I told Stan, or I, as I prepared to interview Stan, one I was nervous, and I'm not a type of dude who gets too nervous about much, but I was feeling this 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 these nerves coming up, and I felt like I need to I need to make sure I understand how he likes to be interviewed. So I listened to probably 15 hours of podcasts of uh, Stan and Tim Ferriss's podcast on. Dave Axelrod's podcast. I mean, the biggest of the big podcasts are are interviewing him. And they all talk about global conflict. And they talk about Choice Special Operations Command. And they talk about military and military change. And all of those things that are super fascinating. And I loved it all. But I knew when I talked to him, we were going to talk about other stuff. We weren't going to talk about that stuff. We're going to talk about what it was like when he had a failure. We're going to talk about what it was like when he went through one of the D's. If you followed me, you know that there's there's five D's that will absolutely change your life. You're going to go through a divorce. You're going to start drinking too much. There's going to be a diagnosis of someone you love or of yourself. There's going to be a death or you're going to get downsized. Something's going to happen to you and you're going to lose your job or the number of kids in your house are going to start going down and there's going to be a downsizing. And I, I told Stan off the bat, that's what I'm going to talk about. And so what you're going to what you're gonna hear here is about somewhere around 15 minutes into the podcast. And I had no idea how he was going to react to this question. I had no idea. I didn't know if he was going to get upset. I didn't know if he was going to ask for a different question and refuse to answer. Because the answer was not going to be a softball. And it was not going to be one that he could talk around. And I was going to ask him about the day that he had to fly back from Afghanistan and go into the Oval Office and stand face to face with the president of the United States and offer his resignation as the commander of US and coalition forces, where he was leading 150,000 troops and forces from 45 countries. And he had to have the courage to have that conversation. And he had to live with the result. And the result was the president accepted his resignation.
1: I was raised with traditional stories of leadership, Robert E. Lee, John Buford at Gettysburg. And I also was raised with personal examples of leadership. This was my father in Vietnam. And I was raised to believe that soldiers were strong and wise and brave and faithful. They didn't lie, cheat, steal, or abandon their comrades. And I still believe real leaders are like that. But in my first 25 years of career, I had a bunch of different experiences. One of my first battalion commanders, I worked in his battalion for 18 months, and the only conversation he ever had with Lieutenant McCrestle was at mile 18 of a 25 mile road march, and he chewed my ass for about 40 seconds. And I'm not sure that was real interaction. But then a couple years later, when I was a company commander, I went out to the National Training Center, and we did an operation, and my company, did a dawn attack, you know, the classic dawn attack. You prepare all night, move to the line of departure. And I had an armored organization at that point. We move forward and we get wiped out. I mean, wiped out immediately. The enemy didn't break a sweat doing it. And after the battle, they bring this mobile theater and they do what they call an after action review to teach you what you've done wrong sort of leadership by humiliation. They put a big screen up and they take you through everything, and then you didn't do this and you did do this, et cetera. I walked out feeling as low as a snake's belly in a wagon rut, And I saw my battalion commander because I had let him down. And I went up to apologize to him and he said, Stanley, I thought you did great. And in one sentence, he lifted me, put me back on my feet and taught me that leaders can let you fail and yet not let you be a failure.
0: So look, I'm not going to... I'm not going to drone on much longer here. You're going to drop into the podcast where I'm kind of setting up the story. Cause I just did, like I said, I didn't know how he's going to react. So I wanted to give him some color on who is it that shows up? Who is it that's listening to this podcast? Because this one's different. This one's different than any other podcast he's done. So I want you to enjoy this. And there are so many lessons here in the next 20 minutes. I can't wait for you to, to listen to them and to hear them. And I'll catch up with all you on the backside everyone. Thanks for being here. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome to the Normal 40 Highway. And if you'd be so great, buy my book, The Trade. It's coming for you. We'll see you on the next page. Over the course of the last 18 months, I've had 437 conversations with people I've never met other than by Zoom. And they come and they show up and they ask for a call from some guy on the Internet who has... Done a transition and appears to have done it successfully, and we all know that in your first year and a half, first year, first few months, then a year, year and a half, there's a lot of success and there's a lot of kind of imposter going on. No matter how much success you've had historically or are having now, and so these the people come in and they're leaders and executives and they're they've got a few things in common. And man, you just you just nailed one of them. But what they have in common here's the demographic of the person who is listening to this podcast. They're leaders and executives. They've dedicated their life to this point, largely to a single profession, a single objective. They're providers for their family. They're problem solvers. They've got good marriages, but there's room for improvement in their marriage. Every one of them. They've lived right. They've lived life by the books. They've checked the boxes. They've outperformed their own expectations. They're relentlessly loyal and they've done what's expected of them. Okay. So who are those people? And you nailed one of them. I'll tell you. The if I put the people of the 437, if I put them in just to a couple of categories, they're physicians and people who work in healthcare, they're attorneys who went to law, decided to go to law school and they were sophomores in college. And now they're 47 and partner, same with accountants, they're business owners, executives and their career military, probably more than anything I hear, you know, in my opening letter to you general, and this is how we get to know each other. I said this, you don't know me. We've never met. I've never donned a military uniform and I've never commanded troops at home or abroad. We may have only one thing in common and it was the only thing I needed when I needed it most. I'm a fan of yours and you shaped my life. And I went on to tell the story about how you put me on my feet. My point is this military people, even though I've never worn the uniform, find me because they feel the same way, whether you're a physician or an attorney or wearing a uniform, they arrive feeling the same way. And I'd love to know on your first day, on day one, on your first day, no longer being a four-star general, walk me through the first hour and then the first day after you come, you'd come. you come to the realization that your life, there was just a trade and you didn't ask for it. You didn't design it, but it happened. Walk me through your first day and kind of how you dealt with that.
1: Well, mine was pretty unique and I don't wish... My first day on anyone, but I'll describe it for you and you for part of the story. After a, an article came out in Rolling Stone magazine, I was asked to fly back from Afghanistan to the United States and meet with the president, which I did. And I went and met with President Obama, who was gracious. But I had been the subject of an article that was putting him in a difficult position. So as we sat down and talked, he asked me what the situation was, what had happened. And I said, I don't know. I haven't had time to investigate it. But I understand the political issue that this article creates. So I have come here with my resignation to offer it to you. And if you want to accept it, I'm fine with that, Mr. President, if you decide not to accept it, I'm fine with that, too. I'll go back and continue doing what you want me to do. And he goes, I've decided I'm going to accept it now with that statement. He ended. The direction of my life that I was almost 56, I was 55. And I had been born in an army hospital, military parents. I had gone to West Point at age 17 and now at age almost 56. In a second, what I was, I was not. So I walked out of the Oval Office and I I met with my assistant, who was an army colonel. And we kind of looked at each other and he could tell from my face that the decision had made to accept it. And we got in the vehicle and drove back across DC to where my wife was in quarters, military quarters at Fort McNair in Washington DC. And I had flown; I'd been gone a year, and I'd flown back. And she'd seen me briefly when I went home just to put my uniform on. Then I immediately gone to the White House, and I looked at her and I said, "Okay." When I walked in the house, I said, "It's over." The president accepted my resignation, and she looked at me. And this is a woman at that time, I've been married to her for almost 34 years. And she said, good. And I was taken aback and she said, we've always been happy and we will always be happy. And it was extraordinary because that's probably the most powerful statement anyone's ever made to me. But the rest of that day is interesting because you've suddenly lost your job and you've lost your career. What do you do? I mean, literally, what do you physically do? I was on the news every hour. They were already doing press conferences and stuff and saying, disgrace general Stan McChrystal, all this kind of stuff. And I wasn't used to that, but I wasn't used to thinking that my 85-year-old father was also watching that down in Tennessee and my son in college was seeing that. That that was embarrassing and it was upsetting. And so I literally that day sat there for a while and I go, I kind of don't know what to do. Do I rail about it? Do I just live with it? I went out running. I'd been up all night flying back from Afghanistan, but clearly, you know, I'm going to go to sleep. So I put on clothes and I went out running and you go out of Fort McNair along the Anacostia River up there. And I just it was a warm day and I just had to get out and do that. And then when I came back to the house, you start to process, okay, what is what am I going to do? There was going to be the logistics of getting out of the army, which was going to take about a month of things you have to do. I sat down and started writing handwritten notes to people that worked for me in Afghanistan. And there were probably 30 or 40 of them. And I wrote handwritten letters to each of them. And I didn't try to explain it or anything. I just wrote notes to thank them for the relationship they would had for me and that the work that they were now carrying on without me, because I felt like I, I was letting them down. And that was a bit cathartic because it allowed me to try to do something for other people. I think I talked to my son that day on the phone. I'm not one of the people who just picks up the phone and starts calling people. It's not my nature. But beside that, I tried to figure out, I began the process of figuring out what was I going to be for the rest of my life. And the first decision had been helped by my wife, Annie, when she said, we've always been happy, we'll always be happy. And that decision was not to relive the past, not to go relitigate anything, not to be the angry person who lost their job and their career and carry that rage with me because, I don't know, it just burns too much energy. And I decided that I'm going to go forward. I had no idea what direction. We didn't know that we'd start my crystal group. I didn't know I'd end up teaching at Yale. I didn't know any of those things. All I knew is I was going to navigate forward and not back. And that turns out to have been the single best decision of my life. Because I think I could have doubled back on the things that I would trying to hold on to. And it would have been of no value. And I think it would have limited my ability to do anything new. And so for the last now 13 years, it's been all sort of exploration of new stuff. And I've been extraordinarily lucky to make new friends, to have new relationships, to new opportunities. And all the things I did those years in the military weren't wasted. They were great. I have relationships. I have things I did I'm proud of. And but going forward has been another new chapter that I am glad I didn't miss. If I had finished my career normally, I might have retired differently and I might have just said, "Okay, I'm going to. The last phase of my life will be a retired general where I just surround myself with the trinkets of my career. And, and I'm glad that that is not the way it worked out.
0: Probably the most interesting and powerful word you said in that entire update or recollection is what Annie said when you came back and said it's over. One word. Good. I wonder, what do you think she knew? I mean, look, being married to a a career military officer wasn't new to her. She'd spent a lifetime next to you. She was born into it. She was surrounded by siblings. She was surrounded by her siblings and brothers-in-law. She knew all about it. And this isn't probably how she wanted it to end or you, obviously. But good. What did she know in that moment that now having 13 years to kind of reflect back at that, What do you think she knew in that moment that you needed that you didn't even know you needed at that point? That is a great question, Lon, because
1: to describe Annie a little bit, you've captured it. She was the daughter of a career soldier and lived her her entire life, but she didn't want to marry a soldier. She had decided that she didn't want to marry one. And then we met when she was a sophomore in or a freshman in college. And I was a sophomore and we fell in love. And so her life continued on in the Army. Right after she graduated from college. So she had done this her whole life. And from our first days when I was at Fort Bragg as Second Lieutenant McChrystal and she was my brand new wife, I never had to tell her what to do as an Army spouse or as a leader. She just did it intuitively. Now, she had had some good role models from her mother and from other senior ladies that we were around. But Annie does things with this intuitive grace and this insight. And I think that she had gone through all the years of our career and then the years of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And we'd been apart for many, many of those. And she had been in Paris. I had part of the article in the Rolling Stone magazine referred to that the visit to Paris. I had to go back to do some meetings. And she had been there in one of the vignettes that the author recounted. So she knew the reality. She knew it was written, but she had been there and she knew the reality. So it wasn't like I had to explain something to her. And I think she knew in that moment that what I needed was not to have the additional burden of having failed her. Because she automatically knew who I felt about not finishing my job, my mission in Afghanistan. She automatically knew how much it would bother me not to finish with the comrades that many had deployed to Afghanistan simply because I asked them to. And I think what she was trying to do was take the burden away from me. That feeling like I'd let her down in any way and that I put her in a bad position. And that was extraordinarily liberating. And what's fun about it. She has never once come back and said, yeah, I just said that, but you know, no, she she just absolutely believes this. I I joke with people. Annie lives her life like she drives with no use for the rearview mirror. And so it's really good to be partnered with somebody like that because they don't agonize over what happened. They just go, okay, let's
0: go. One of the I asked that question for this reason. And the 437 people I've talked to, I just described who they are. They kind of make the assumption, you know, after 25 or 30, maybe only 20 years of marriage, they make the assumption, keep in mind, these are leaders, executives, they're providers, problem solvers, and they're relentlessly loyal. And they kind of they assume that after they're married for one, two, and three years, one in the couple typically goes out and climbs and becomes the provider and does all those things. And the other tends to maybe stay home and take care of family and and do other things. And there becomes this unwritten contract. There's this understanding, and it's never really discussed other than maybe in year 1 or year 2 or while you're dating but you get to this point you're 20 years in and now maybe you're wondering if your work here is done and maybe it's time to finish and you assume that your spouse kind of wants you to stay because you assume your spouse likes the big house and maybe he likes the club and likes the big car but you don't have that conversation and so when the people i talk to and just hearing your story between you and Annie when the conversation is finally forced or you finally muster the courage to have it and it takes courage Oddly, in a twenty year marriage, to have this conversation. odd courage. It's easier to ask your boss for a raise than it is to ask your wife if it's okay if you quit your job. It's weird. and uh, And what they typically find out is their wife or husband, the spouse who's home, is welcoming the adventure. They know you've done what you can do. They're your biggest advocate. They will sell the house, get rid of the car. Move across the country if that's what they need to do, if that's what gets you back. And I hear it again and again and again. And once people have that conversation, they have that awkward conversation with their spouse. It's this liberation that now they feel competitive again. They feel like they've got permission, not in the sense like they needed permission, but they've given themselves permission to go be somebody else. And they get to do, to use your term, new stuff like my crystal group. And I just absolutely love that. I want to ask you a question. So, going back to the moment when you're in the white house and you were wearing your resume and you probably knew going in, this was going to end in one of two ways. You knew it. You'd been around long enough to know that it isn't what you wanted. There was nothing you did intentionally, but these were the cards you were currently holding. And it wasn't a particularly good hand. And I've been there. I want to know now fast forward in, in that moment. I know you were hoping for an ACE. You were hoping to pull an ACE. And to just get back to being four-star general Stanley McChrystal. But that didn't happen. And I'm wondering now, after the 13 years you've had to be the new you, to have McChrystal Group, to have all the relationships you've built, the companies you've helped, and the books you've written, and to impact me, I'm here because of that conversation, because you didn't draw an ace. I'm here because of that. I'm curious to know if you could go back to that time, if you'd still be wishing for an ace. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because
1: I did go in the Oval Office knowing how it was going to come out. But there was always that part of me saying, who knows, bolt to lightning. He's going to say, stay, and go do that. I didn't think that would happen. But the reality is you do hope for that because you want to hold on to what you got. You want to finish the job. I'm glad it didn't happen now. Now, I don't want to go back through that uh, experience. And there's part of me that mourns the fact that regardless of what anyone says, Stan McChrystal's name always has an asterisk next to it because kind of like it didn't end the way I wanted it to. And so there's always just a little bit. When somebody writes an article about me, they usually, even if it's positive, they normally have a sentence or two saying, yeah, but X. And that's painful. But the reality is Had I stated I was going to stay in the army two more years, it was my plan. I was going to stay three years in Afghanistan, then I planned to retire. It could have lasted longer than that. But the reality is, had I got out later, I was just about to turn 56, I wouldn't have the runway. And I don't think I would have had the impetus to start my crystal group or to do different stuff. I think it would have been much easier for me then to do much less new and sort of have a you know, a glide slope that sort of takes me out of the military and and takes me into a a less active retirement. And with retrospect, the wisdom of hindsight. Now, it was the best thing in the world that I left the army at that point. You know, I, I don't write President Obama thank you notes or anything like that. But the reality is my wife and I joke about it. It was just extraordinarily fortuitous that mm-hmm. that Jolt hit me at the time when I had the energy, the physical capability, and now the impetus to go do different stuff. I had to be adaptable because I didn't really have a choice. And
0: so I'm thankful for it. It's actually something I hear a lot from, you know, this is our country's in a a downsizing time. People are getting let go, and people, individuals, leaders, providers, the people I'm talking to, I call the normal 40. They've been in a career for 25 or 30 years and they show up to work on a Friday morning and their world changed. The person they've been for the last 20 years for the company they've they've dedicated their life to has no longer has a need for them and they've they've got to go through this. And more times than not, they used to call me and they they don't ever complain about their company. They're not mad at their company. They they even understand why it happened. They've been around long enough to know that cycles like this happen. But again and again, they say what you just said that look, this, thank goodness it happened because I might not have ever had the courage to take this opportunity to do something had it not happened. And again and again, they they find this awakening in them that they didn't have just months and years before. It had kind of been drained out of them. And they find this awakening and they they rediscover all of the things that they're great at. And they get an opportunity then to go to go put it to good use. And it doesn't mean it's not scary. And it doesn't mean it's easy but it does liberate them and force people to adapt into who they're going to be next. So your story about retiring as a four-star versus being an individual who runs a spectacular company that helps Fortune 100 companies, helps all sorts of companies, but just happens to help a majority of the Fortune 100 companies with strategy is, is uh, wouldn't be possible had it not happened. And I think that's, that's pretty beautiful. One of the lines, I remember when I was going through this and I was wrestling, You know, one of the things you can do, it either happens by a downsizing, this trade, the thing you went through and the thing that I went through that I call the trade, it happens when there's a downsizing. So the heads in your house start going down or you get let go. It can happen if you start drinking. It can be Tuesday night. If you're sitting on the couch, drink too much, that's going to lead to problems. It can happen if you go through a divorce. It recalibrates how you think. It can happen if you go through a diagnosis, yourself or your spouse, or it can happen if there's a death near you. It shakes your sense of what reality really is and what's important. And I ask people in that moment to really get clarity, the work you're doing, and if you're feeling anxiety for what you're doing, is it that your work there is done? And I wonder if you look back now, if you look back now at your military career, are you able to say to yourself that... All the work you did and all the greatness you did and all of the DNA that continues, that remains over JSOC, that remains over the United States military. And that still ripples through people like me. If your work there was done.
1: Uh, I don't know. I think that there was more I could do, but none of us complete the task. We're all part of a continuum and we contribute like the building of a nation or the raising of children. We typically don't survive long enough to take them through their whole lives, nor should we. The key thing is that while we are responsible as stewards or carrying the mission or whatever, that we've done our best. We don't have to get it right. We don't have to finish it. All we have to do is be part of that unbroken chain that carries the burden it can be taken by new people. And if we can look back on our lives and we can say that we did our best at that, then that's plenty. I talked to a lot of veterans about Afghanistan, particularly, but also Iraq. And some will come to me and they'll say, well, you know, how do you feel about it now? Because it didn't come out like, you know, we all wanted it to and, and various things. I said, well, here's the question. Did you do your duty? If you can look yourself in the mirror and say, I did my duty, and it's brought a sense for the nation, but also for your comrades. If you did that, sleep well at night. That's the best you can do. That's the best you can ever do. And so I think that's true of everything. You're never going to leave your corporation exactly like you want it to be. And five years after you leave, it'll have new problems. And people will say, well, it was something that they didn't do, do right back in the day. Okay. Don't sweat that. Just do your best.
0: Well, if you're like me, you're probably blown away with the incredible candor and decency and vulnerability and just awe inspiring leadership of general Stanley McChrystal or excuse me, Stan, as he, he scolds me at some point in the podcast, when you hear the whole thing, you'll, you'll get to hear it. It's, it's pretty, pretty classic. Cause look, I, I just felt like calling general McChrystal Stan felt like, you know, calling the Pope frank or something i don't know it felt very very awkward but he asked me multiple times to call him stan and and i honor that but some of the things he talked about absolutely in just this little clip are absolutely incredible his message about day one what do you do on day one and then he says i mean really what do you do yeah man it's tough and he talks about how hard it is but then he says something absolutely fascinating that he makes the decision to move forward Because going backwards just takes too much energy and holding onto this burden of feeling like you had let people down just by doing your your level best is a burden he didn't want to carry. It takes too much energy and he was going to go forward and he was going to go forward with the next chapter of his life. And he makes reference or I make reference to wearing his resume. And he talks about how he would walk into a room and he could look around the room just like every soldier does. And you can tell by looking at somebody's chest what their resume was. And he talks about what the last day was of having his resume and how much he looks forward to the new life he has. I mean, probably the most incredible part of this podcast for me is when he talks about he's come to the point now, fast forward that he's glad that he's had the opportunity to live this chapter of his life. Now, he didn't get there. We talked about him wanting to draw that ace, that he would, he would walk into the Oval Office and that maybe, just maybe, the decision that was ultimately made was going to go another way. And he was going to be holding an ace, but it didn't happen. He was not holding an ace. And he was asked to resign. And then he thought about He went home and he was called disgraced general Stan McChrystal. And his dad was hearing this message and how, how brutally hard that was. But that as he looks back at it all, he wouldn't wish it on anyone, but he wouldn't trade it for anything because it gave him the opportunity to be who he has become. That failure, that downsizing gave him the opportunity to be who he has become. And he's glad it happened in that moment. He said that. It was. It inspired me, and I hope that for you, you can take that to the bank, knowing that if it can happen to this guy, it can happen for you. So look, I just want to say one more thing, and this is for Stan. You make a comment, Stan, in our podcast that we chatted, that you feel like there's always going to be an asterisk by your name. That no matter any time somebody talks about you, it will be this but in the conversation. And I want you to know something, sir, if you're listening to this. For you, there is going to be an asterisk by your name, but it's going to have nothing to do with anything but decency, honor, inspiration, decency. I've already said that, but it's just so true. But the asterisk for me is going to be the guy who shows up when he didn't have to. You didn't have to show up for my podcast. You didn't have to show up for my book. You didn't have to show up for me through your vulnerability in 2015, but you did. Your asterisk for me, are all of the things and all of the ripples and all of the things that you've done in every day since that day. That's the asterisk you get from me, man. And that's the asterisk that I want everybody else to take from you too. I want you to take that asterisk and I want you to wear it like a badge, like you used to wear on your old uniform. That's your resume to me. That's your asterisk. And I can't thank you enough because if it hadn't been for how you chose to react to what happened to you, I would not be here. I never know who I'm going to meet every time I hit join meeting to include my conversation with Stan McChrystal, but I sure was relieved to be face-to-face with a guy I got to know and a guy I now get to call my friend. Everyone, thank you for being here. Thank you for being part of Normal 40. Thank you for being and tuning into my podcast. And if you would, I would be honored if you would consider buying my book, The Trade you can find it on normal40.com or you can buy the trade by lon stroshine on amazon and you're going to you're going to learn a lot about yourself when you read that book look i tell everybody you're going to read that book and you're not going to get anything out of me that's not why i wrote it i wrote that book because it's finally going to get something out of you and that's my mission and if you like it leave me a review and if you love it, post about it. The only way I'm going to reach the next guy who needs it, the only way Stan reached me is because somebody shared that podcast with me. And the only way my message is going to reach the next guy is when you have the courage to share the story, share the book, share a post, share a podcast. All right, everyone. Thanks for being here. My name's Lon Strohshain, And from me and Adam Eaton, thank you for being here. I'm going to see you a little further down the road and I'm going to see you on the next page.